0: I suppose we have two different of levels of marketing strategy when it comes to the innovation. The first conversation that we need to have before we can even start talking about what we're doing on a product level is, are your products even working for you at the moment? And do you even realise that there's a need for this innovation? So our whole content strategy, which really informs our whole brand strategy, is all around getting people to stop settling.
1: Hi, I'm Lottie, founder of The Coffee Club, a community of entrepreneurial marketeers helping to make each other's lives easier. This is The Marketing Hustle, where we're joined by the founders and starting teams of some of our favorite businesses to discover the strategies, hard work and hustle that got them to their first 10,000 customers. In this episode, I spoke to Jodie Elphick, head of brand at Calily, who are innovating and removing the shame in the world of periods. This week, I got to chat to Jodie in the luxury of my garden, so excuse the sounds of nature you can hear in the background. We discussed why she actually doesn't like the term hustle because it implies things need to be unnecessarily hard. And actually, it changed my view of lots of things. I really can't wait to hear what you think. It was a particularly personally important conversation for me. (music) To start with, It would be fantastic to hear in your words the story of Callerley the brand and the innovation specifically because it's a a story rooted in innovation both in terms of brand strategy but also in what you're building.
0: Yeah absolutely so this may shock you to hear I think it should shock everybody to hear but there actually hasn't been any really significant innovation to tampons at all for the last 80 years since the first tampon was um, patented in the 1930s and I think it's just something that so many of us have never even thought about before. I certainly hadn't before I joined Callerly, that tampons just really look very much the same now as they did 80 years ago. We made an, an unboxing video that kind of made a joke of this really last year, where you, you got to see products aimed at women in the 1930s next to ones from today, like curling tongs, razors, contraception, and everything has changed. Dramatically, apart from the tampon, which is exactly the same, really
1: exactly the same. I would imagine that they've got maybe a bit slimmer and a bit less kind of DIY. Is that true,
0: or or really are we dealing with the same thing? It's it is surprising. I mean, there have been some tweaks. I would say so. You can obviously get different absorbencies now. You can get applicator or non-applicator tampons. The string color may change, and they maybe look a little bit thicker or thinner. Basically. It's very, very recognisably the same thing. Mm. And I think the question really is in any other area of life since the 1930s, you just expect to have seen massive progression because consumer needs change. And there's a constant kind of dynamic of improvements, more demands, improvement, more demands, more innovation. And there hasn't been that going on in the tampon sector. And I think you know, if the reason for that was that tampons were perfect and were working really well for everybody, so there was no need to change them, then that would be fine and we'd leave it alone. But what we know through our own research is that seven out of 10 people who use tampons also have to double up with a liner because they're worried that the tampon's going to leak. So that's something we can all relate to is just that kind of constant slight, nagging anxiety when am I gonna have to change my tampon and such a shocking statistic yeah that
1: women live with that where they live with such lack of trust in a tool that's so fundamental to like the way they experience the world Mm, absolutely you know that that saying that this product is broken it doesn't do the job for me that I need it to do because seven out of ten times I'm having to use another one as well
0: Yes precisely but then i think what happens is that we tend to blame ourselves and there's the whole that whole conversation recently in particular around adulting and like personal admin and i'm just being a bad adult oh god you know i have i've made this, this mistake again i've leaked again and we turn it on ourselves rather than asking is there something wrong with this product mm-hmm. and, and the industry as well just has not been set up to send to the people that are actually using the products at all it has been a very cis male dominated space and and quite a kind of just not the most diverse industry so but I think that's that's
1: not a given right coming as an you know I happen to know that about this industry but I think it's deeply shocking Hmm. that this is a an industry built designed led by men Hmm. What we're dealing here is a problem they fundamentally can't understand
0: Yes. And it's been very led by function. So because of the way that the industry is kind of segmented, I suppose, you get period care products get kind of bunched up with nappies and they they tend to be seen in this very performance led kind of way. But within narrow parameters of what's already known, I suppose, and, and there's not that same taking a step back and thinking, hang on, could we just do something completely different? There has been in the period care sector over the last decade much more, and we're starting to see particularly new reusables coming up, which is brilliant. But tampon yeah. just felt like that area had kind of fallen behind, which is where Canalee steps in with the tamp liner, which is a completely new innovation. It's a totally redesigned tampon, and it's a combination of a tampon with a mini liner as well. So you don't have to double up the two mm. products um, and the the mini liner actually tucks between your labia and it's worn that way, and then there's a kind of very very thin what we call the virtual applicator which connects the two, which keeps your finger clean as you're inserting the tampon, and then as you pull the tampon back out, it actually wraps the tampon completely mess free, ready for the bin. You shouldn't be flushing your tampons anyway, so that's good. Um, yeah. So it does both jobs. It gives you that extra leak protection. It's organic cotton. It's totally hypoallergenic. And you can wear it with any underwear, no underwear, to a yoga class, to do whatever you want to do.
1: Okay. So that is genuine innovation in a category that desperately needs it. Yeah. How are you marketing that innovation?
0: So... We go in on very, well, I suppose we have two different kind of levels of marketing strategy when it comes to the innovation. The first conversation that we need to have before we can even start talking about what we're doing on a product level is, are your products even working for you at the moment? And do you even realize that there's a need for this innovation? So our whole content strategy, which really informs our whole brand strategy, is all around getting people to stop settling. And it's that apathetic mindset that we're all in, like no judgment at all. Almost everybody who starts working with us is doing the same thing until they start thinking about it more. But you just kind of almost sleepwalk into the supermarket, go for either the cheapest or the best offer or the brand that you know that you've been using since you were probably 12 or 13 when you first started your period that maybe your mum just casually handed you. So we're all in this behavioral pattern of just not even expecting innovation and that's the first thing that we try and challenge on a on a wider level and then we look at the details so can you wear or are you comfortable wearing your current tampon doubled up with possibly a pad on a heavier day into your yoga class are you finding that you're suffering from irritation and it happens to come around once a month why could that be maybe you need to try something new so it's that groundwork about questioning why aren't we expecting innovation that really has to happen first
1: and what channels like let's make that a little bit more kind of real are you you doing that in digital comms are you doing that in paid communication how does that come to life
0: yeah so we do bigger brand awareness campaigns where we ask that question so the brand video that we made last year was a great example of that by getting people to unbox 1930s products and have a look at them it I think it really made the point visually that there hasn't been innovation seeing people taking out of a box this huge pair of hair tongs that really look like a torture device was just there was a vibrator as well that just kind of looks like some sort of carpentry mechanical <laughs> device, which is terrifying um, this, you just wouldn't let any of that stuff anywhere near you, whereas the temple was very similar. So we do those kind of bigger um, questioning brand activity pieces. And then in our digital advertising, we'll ask those questions specifically in our copywriting. So we'll say, like, are you feeling irritated by your period products? Did you realise that this is out there? Are you still doing the same old thing every month? So you're building a monster in your
1: high reach top of the funnel comms in order then to solve that problem
0: yeah absolutely and I mean it, it just it's such a widespread spread problem I think it, it's really it's a social issue like why are we not kind of encouraged to engage with our bodies and our periods in such a way that by the time we get to make those purchase decisions ourselves we're ready to think right okay what do I want then what's going to work for me like maybe that worked for my mum but she's a bit different from me because her periods are heavier. So why don't I try this? It's just almost unheard of. We do have to kind of tap into that conversation, let people know that it's it's a problem.
1: So once you've done that, do you then use different messaging to convert those customers Or, or is the monster enough? Is that compelling?
0: Yeah, it varies. We do, you know, we have a kind of classic marketing funnel. So we'd start with the more general questions, and then we retarget people with questions that are a bit more specific to the behaviour that we know they already have. So if we know they're interested in fitness, for example, then we'd kind of ask them about that. So yeah, we're kind of doing, we're asking that question across all levels.
1: If you look back over the Calorie growth so far, Are there moments where you feel like the needles really moved, like particular executions that have felt like a hack and you've gone, yes, like this is it, I'm onto a good thing and I'm going to chase this little rabbit for a bit?
0: Yeah, there was a, what started really is a brand kind of PR campaign last year that just felt like such a defining moment in our identity. And it was a campaign called The Whole Bloody Truth, and, and what we did was to just try and tell really true, diverse stories about what it's like to have a period. If you forget everything you know about women in like, tight white cycling shorts, playing tennis, rollerblading, and also if you forgot everything you know about the kind of newer story around periods, which is very cupcakes and sprinkles and we love having periods and we're just very positive about everything. If you looked into that middle ground, who would you find there who wasn't being represented at the moment? And we just spoke to some amazing people with brilliant stories to tell. So there's Vic, who's a trans man who has periods and who just doesn't see himself reflected in period care advertising or the media at all. And there were people with various different bodies from different faiths, from different backgrounds who just had very specific stories to tell. And we also did some research alongside that campaign that showed that 66% of people do not feel represented in the media or in period advertising. So, again, it's another pretty big majority of people that just aren't being spoken to or catered to at all. Yeah. And and that campaign gave people the opportunity. I mean, we just passed the mic to people and, and asked them to tell their stories in their own words um, and share about it on social And we got a great response. We got some brilliant press coverage out of it. But the kind of press coverage that it feels like it really means something because we're tapping into a movement that needs to happen, not just kind of like, oh, look, this brand did this kind of clever gag, you know.
1: What do you mean by press coverage that means something? Do you mean press coverage that will get someone to take action?
0: I think press coverage that felt like it might be able to be part of changing culture. For example, just the simple fact that not everybody who has periods is a woman and not all women have periods is largely gets lost in period care messaging, even though it's a pretty fundamental point to make about periods. And so getting that kind of coverage in glamour and cosmopolitan and dazed is really important because it's helping to drive home that point and to separate out that kind of binary view of periods which then makes space for everybody who feels like maybe their period experience is a little bit different even if it's that their periods are very heavy very painful or that they're totally disengaged from their periods and they don't know what to say about them it's it's helping to show that nothing's abnormal and that there's space for everybody
1: if I was playing really annoying devil's advocate to this yeah I'd say This category building strategy is phenomenal and I fully respect the social kind of social justice motivation behind what you do. And I think that's phenomenal. But but fundamentally, you're not a charity. Yeah. How do you play out that pressure?
0: Well, I suppose on a on a company level, we are a B Corp. So although we're not a charity, we are committed to making sure that we put some good back and that we genuinely do something constructive and something good in the world. So we do take our decisions, perhaps with more of a pinch of social responsibility than some other period care brands might do. But then also we've tried also to extend our product offering so that it's also as wide as possible. So we're genuinely backing up. I suppose once we've kind of told people you have a choice. And you need to get engaged we're then offering people a genuine choice of lots of different products that you can mix and match in lots of different combinations to make sure it fits your period and we don't want we're not trying to convert everybody to be a calorie customer you know about half the world's population has got periods and is going to need to buy period care products at some point so it's not about trying to convince everybody that we are the one and only great solution it's it really is kind of about changing those attitudes and hoping that enough people will then think that's important that they'll want to shop with us as well is it working it is working yeah we're getting some really great uh, we're getting some great results we're growing fast we're actually going to be going to be launching into retail later this year hopefully so that will be a really exciting development um, that's huge was that a difficult decision for the business yeah i mean at the moment from a brand perspective i suppose we've had that kind of question about do we need to then compromise our direct consumer brand or change it in some way or create something completely new and i think at the moment we're just going to trial um tampliners to start with and then possibly pads in retail so It feels like we kind of go in being very tampliner focused at the moment and see how that works with our existing branding, which we think is right. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the business decision, it's trying to find where people are. And at the moment, it's just not an established enough buying behavior to get your period products online. Even though we think it's so much easier, it hasn't occurred to a lot of people.
1: I really resonate with that mostly because I'm just super disorganized. And so I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever have the 24 hours. I have the like five minutes to get to the corner shop. Yeah. And um, you know that's just such a fascinating point. You're not only trying to change the way we shop a category on autopilot in terms of brand, mm. but then in terms of products, like what is this tampliner? What's the role it can play for me in my life? And then finally, in terms of purchase decision,
0: yeah.
1: I need to, I need to shop in a different way. So we've kind of talked about how you've taken on the category and perhaps the product. What have you learned from the e-com journey so far in terms of how to get people to start thinking about buying something online Mm. when they otherwise wouldn't?
0: It's definitely a current challenge. It's something we talk about all the time. We're still relatively young. You know, we've been doing this for about three years now. So We're still learning all the time what what works with people. And as anybody who works creating social ads will know, even when something works, you're not always sure whether it worked because they like the pink or they they thought the joke was funny or they thought that it was time to completely change their purchasing behaviour. So you have to do a lot of testing and a lot of learning. And I think... You know that the re- one of the reasons why we've decided to go into retail is so that we're kind of covering those bases as well. But we, again, in our social messaging, we do targeted kind of lines that say, "Don't get caught short again." Just been writing some kind of funny copy to go in the bottom of our retail boxes to remind people to go and buy another box. Otherwise, you're going to end up doing that toilet roll hack again. It's just that kind of oh gosh,
1: I know that so well. That's so that's such good insight. It
0: makes me squirm. This is the brilliant thing about working in a brand and content team in this area is that it's so fueled by these insights, these very personal insights. And you have to like steal yourself to bring something that feels really quite personal into work and make something of it. But pretty much our whole all our content, all our advertising really is fueled by a pretty small, friendly, very transparent team of people just coming into work and being like, oh, this happened to me. And then everyone else going like, yeah, that's happened to me too. Put on the list. (laughs) Set it in. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Okay, so test and learn, but like with everything D 2 C, who knows what works. And I really hear you on that. I think we're all struggling, whatever category mm. you're struggling with with that like tension right between this feeling that everything can be optimized and that we should have data to inform every single decision, and then just the feeling that you're boggled by the data and you don't know what it tells you. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah. I think that's really real. Um and retail makes an awful lot of sense. So customer insight which you've just touched on is a, is a fascinating one you know and and something i passionately believe that not enough small brands use well enough mm. is is your insight driven by a team of women is your insight driven by close relationships with your early adopters how do you how do you pull that into everything
0: you you do yeah it's a mixture covering all those points So our CX team constantly feeds back customer insight to us. We all, um, in our all team, stand up every week, for example. One of the CX team will read out one positive and one negative or, or less positive bit of feedback that we can all try and learn from. And we also get a kind of weekly email called Voice of the Customer that the wonderful Amelia sends out. So we're all very kind of, we feel very close to our customers on that level. We also do interviews. Um, with our customers and so ever for example the head of product and co-founder will phone our customers whether they love or hate tampliners and ask them loads of really detailed questions about why and what we think we can do differently so and then you know on social as well I think because we're a fairly small team we're just aware of the conversations that are happening we're aware of perceptions and we just bring that all into our comms planning all the time
1: can you think I'd love to hear more about that? Like this voice of the customer thing. That's so powerful. Is there an example of a time where someone says something to you, albeit Moni, that's inspired action?
0: Yeah, so we do have a bit of an issue sometimes with some people being able to wee with a tamp liner in because the mini liner kind of tucks between your labia and it's right there when you go to the loo. And so for some people, you mm. you just do a wee. For other people, you need to move it out of the way slightly. And then for other people or other moments, are you gonna wee on the tamp liner and have to change it? And then again, some people. Tend to change their tampon when they go to the loo anyway whereas others don't so it really is this kind of quite complex matrix of different scenarios but because we do know that for some people it's an issue that's immediately become a product innovation kind of pipeline and the head of product's been looking at new designs for the mini liner which we're going to go into testing with shortly So, yeah, absolutely. We take that feedback, any themes that we spot, and we look at how we can give people new choices. And it may well be that we will add something, you know, rather than changing something existing. If it's working for lots of people, we may add a new variant so that we're giving a bit of extra choice.
1: Have you just learned that this is a total minefield? Like every time we come back to a a bit about the category, what I'm hearing from you is just like, it is so different for such a diverse group of women with diverse challenges. Hmm. Or are there also some really dominant themes that kind of sit above it all?
0: I mean, I would say from obviously a very kind of skewed biased position that the brand is therefore what, why it's so important that we're really strongly anchored within what we stand for and that we're giving people some value, regardless of what they it, ultimately what combination of products and absorbances they end up choosing We're still giving people some value and they're still very clear on who we are. Otherwise, our messaging could be incredibly complicated. But also, I suppose it it just comes down to this question of figuring out what works for you. And there are a million different ways that things could work for you. But as long as you're figuring it out and you're going into the situation actively and thinking what do i need okay i'm leaking too much on day 3 of my period normally when it gets really heavy so i need to supplement that with something else or i need to up my absorbency if you're having that kind of dialogue with yourself about your periods then for us that's a winner cuz we're starting to really get somewhere then
1: that's fascinating so success for you in terms of change of mindset is just an active engagement and then that once once you've got someone thinking actively then you bring the innovation to them and and that'll that'll all come together
0: absolutely yeah
1: you you made a really good point there around the importance of master brand and in a in a world where you're iterating and testing so you're both testing but you're also talking to a diverse audience with diverse challenges Mm. master brand is crucial Mm. what is the Callerly master brand and kind of what are your rules of thumb to protect it
0: the, the Callerly Master Brand is definitely around the idea of Stop Settling. So it is all about this empowering, getting into an active mindset kind of idea. Um, and also anybody who engages with Callerly would know that there's a real inclusivity to our brand. And those are kind of very key pillars to everything that we do. We've got brand guidelines, obviously, that we kind of send out to anybody that we work with. And we give quite detailed tone of voice pointers to people as well we tend to keep quite a lot of control over the editorial process so even if we're working with other copywriters or creators um, to make social ads for example with us we will have editorial say at the end we'll always have sign off and we'll make quite a lot of edits to make sure that things feel as inclusive as they should do and that we're using the right language so a lot of it comes through in the detail like for example we would never say feminine hygiene even though that's very common term in the space, partly because, as I said earlier, you know, not everybody that has periods is a woman and we don't see any need for that to be kind of constantly being mentioned in the labelling of the category. But then also this word hygiene just suggests slightly that there's something dirty about periods, which we find really unhelpful when it comes to busting the taboo and removing shame, which we're really passionate about. So a lot of it is in the details of the words and we have a style guide that that details all of that.
1: You've assumed, which mm. is fantastic to hear, that brand guidelines and, and style guidelines and tone of voice principles are a given. I can tell you that for many businesses of <laughs> your size, those <laughs> exist in the back of the brain of the marketing director mm. or kind of in the shared telepathic ethos of a team of people and are are inarticulate and are simply not you know not unprioritized I don't think any business will say they see no need for them but are not I just never get done how did you go about doing those things because those are not easy jobs if you don't know how to do it how did you go about doing them and why do you think they're so important
0: I think, first of all, we're lucky in that the whole team at Callerly really understands the need for a good, strong brand. So Tang, our CEO, gives us that time and space and respects that. So we're on the front foot to start with. You know, we're given that kind of power to do that. And then the teams of people that we work with as well just tend to come from a really strong brand storytelling kind of background. So our founding CMO Kate and I used to work together at Story, which was a brand storytelling agency. So we were doing this stuff for clients all the time. And we'd seen the pitfalls that our clients could fall into and knew that part of the reason why brands often want to work with agencies is just to get that kind of clarity, to get things written down. And having been both sides now, I can really understand that. So right in the (laughs) early days, we knew how important it was to have things clear to have them written down also just to have them in a beautiful deck that people actually want to read because no one really wants to scroll through like a massive kind of word document So we've been strict about that. I suppose also we've worked with a fair variety of different freelancers and agencies. We now have a brilliant art director in house, but we didn't until Christmas. So we needed to work with loads of creatives all the time. And that meant that having brand guidelines was really vital as well. And then also we do have quite a specialized message. People may well meet us, start working with us and just think, Oh yeah, great periods. I know what to say about that and get it completely wrong. And that would be just absolutely not acceptable to us at all. So we are we are in a position where we have to kind of defend our corner and make it really clear what we stand for in everything we do. Mm.
1: And if someone listening to this Is thinking, (laughs) I'm doing that thing where I'm like, I'm asking for a friend because I know so (laughs) many people who are in this position who are thinking, I really want to do this beautiful deck and I really want this document and I know it's so important, but it's going to take me three days and I don't know how I'm going to find the three days and how am I going to convince my boss that it's important and I don't really know where to start.
0: Hmm.
1: What's your... You know, it sounds like from from your experience at Story, from your passion in the business and from the setup you've been given, that's not the situation you've had. But what would your advice be to that person?
0: It's really tricky. I think part of it is just trusting that we're all human. And regardless of how much pressure there might be to sort of present this very data-driven spreadsheet, we're also like just making pretty stuff that's explained really well and that's done nicely that you think is an interesting deck in itself, people are going to listen to that a lot more. So take courage and think, let's just make something that feels fun or that feels like the brand in itself to communicate yes. it.
1: It has to be on brand. Fundamentally, you can't communicate the brand in an off-brand way. And I see that done so often, like a, an aerial font word
0: doc that says, be fun, like... <laughs> yeah it's not hitting home (laughs) makes me feel nothing yeah then I think the time wise I mean that's just such a struggle isn't it I think it in a startup we're all always just kind of well you know you've got your three page long to-do list and you're tearing your hair out wondering how to get everything done and it's just reminding yourself that getting that foundation right sounds like a real mum thing to say but it will (laughs) time in the long run because it's going to be so much easier to communicate so it is a priority even if it doesn't feel like it is and then in terms of sort of selling it in I think you know you, you even though brand is a bit of an amorphous subject and it can be difficult to talk about and difficult to prove there are great examples out there that you can tailor make for whatever it is you're trying to do so you can say look at at this brand imagine if they were trying to do that and they didn't have the brand that mm. they have. this is the power of it find some stats to back it up if that's the person you're presenting to like what's the roi or newsletters compared with whatever and then kind of make sure that you've got something sprinkled in there that's going to speak to their concerns as well
1: there's something in that around you, know, you might someone might not be able to articulate their belief in brand but everyone can look at a well-executed brand and see that there's a coherence in it that's come from something powerful so yeah maybe it's about showcasing good brands co- good coherent brands in your category and less coherent brands in your category and I think that might be a way of getting stakeholders to kind of feel the difference even if they don't necessarily
0: understand the work involved Hmm, absolutely and again that's why it's it's lucky that we work for somebody who really understands branding and beautiful branding because you don't have to explain that all the time sometimes kind of cross-functionally fun- you have to have that conversation more and explain to people like you know it, it, you can always fall into that competitive trap can't you of like everyone's busy why do you need two days to create a deck that feels like a vanity thing but there's always a way of kind of reminding people that these things take time, that it has to be done properly.
1: One's in this position, shout, and Joji and I can try
0: to be a bit more specific.
1: <laughs> um, you've talked a bit about the, well, we, we talked about the lack of innovation in the category, but it, it does feel like there's a little bit going on. Like there's a few direct-to-consumer propositions in this space, and there are definitely some people tackling the environmental challenges specifically how do you view like the rest of the landscape and I guess there's two there's two thoughts in my head around this one is do you see them as your competitor you know is your customer choosing between you and dame Hmm. or, or is that actually irrelevant and what's your relationship with the competitive landscape on the whole are you studying everything they do or actually do you have your eyes elsewhere
0: yeah, and in, in terms of the business innovation, product development, and particularly the proposition, the business proposition, then we do keep a close eye on what everybody else is doing to make sure we're competitive, to see what what consumers are choosing between. For us, the big question in people's minds is, shall I just go to the supermarket and buy this famous high street brand again or shall I start caring more and then which if they decide to go organic for example which organic cotton brand is then a kind of secondary question so we we definitely we we often say that our big uh, competitor is apathy and I think when you look at the numbers still the vast majority of people are going out and buying those just off the shelf big bulk purchases of non-organic period It's very easy, actually, once you start working in this space, because of algorithms and because of just kind of, I suppose, the stuff you end up talking about and looking at all day, it's very easy to think that everybody's much more clued up than they are. And a certain proportion of people are, but the masses are not. So, yes, there's been some great innovation recently. and, And for the most part, we kind of appreciate those smaller competitors, look at what they're doing and think, brilliant, this is all good. We're all doing a category job together. We're all kind of trying to bust the taboo and start the conversation together, and that makes sense. And then what we can lead on is that kind of customization, choice, and the innovation. And we've got obviously a patented product that nobody else has as well. So I think within that we're fairly kind of confident in our in our voice within that sector.
1: I ask it because I think it's such an important. I, I, I suspected that you were going to say, Something similar to what you said, because I don't have no idea the shared data, but it must be overwhelmingly still in favor of Lillettes and Tampax to kind of a a crazy, crazy, crazy extreme. But I see it so often, this this echo chamber that evolves. It's really interesting for you to say, which is so true. It just becomes your Instagram feed. Like the algorithm just thinks that you're this like category junkie because yeah. of course you're googling this stuff all the time and so your own world becomes completely saturated in this sort of messaging mm-hmm. which is so different from the reality for for
0: your customer i always want to make the point that you, yeah you have to look with your head up you do and i think we're pretty good at that in in our content team we have a real culture of questioning what, are we being clichéd does this is this what we want to see would this mean something to my cousin who knows nothing about this? Who would, you know, we know some of our customers kind of by name and we know their profile and what they're looking for. So we would think about them and think, are they going to care about that? We do a lot of double checking and we try not to make assumptions. So we'll always make sure, for example, when we're planning our Instagram feed, that we've got some stuff that's quite detailed and and really goes there. And then some other stuff that's always acknowledging, like, you may not have even thought about this before, or Mm. it might still make you feel uncomfortable, which is totally fine.
1: Okay, a couple more questions. But I think this has been fantastic. I think we're getting
0: towards the final few. Mm.
1: How has your role and your work evolved?
0: I actually started Callerly about a month after having my second child. I still, I had a baby and I was freelance and I was kind of up for doing some copywriting and some brand strategy and starting to think about this brand that was just being built from nothing. I mean, the team had this amazing innovation, The, the company side of things was fantastic, a really strong foundation, but there just wasn't a brand at all yet. So I started off on a freelance basis, just kind of helping to shape those initial conversations and writing copy for the first website, the first packaging, writing the brand strategy all around, stop settling, writing the tone of voice. And it kind of gathered pace, I suppose, as the years have gone by, I became head of content after maybe a year or two, and then head of brand and content. And the team's changed a little bit. We've got bigger. We now sell a whole range of different products as well as the tampliner. And these huge changes have happened and I suppose those early days of sitting there with a little baby at my dining table thinking, "How should this sound?" are still definitely there mm. the still there. And then we've been so informed, of course, by all new tim- team members joining, by what we've learned from our customers, by conversations that we've had with just other people out there in the world. But the core of your role feels really consistent, yeah. Absolutely I, it's really nice you know because there's genuinely an intuitive I don't know exactly how to describe it but there's a very real connection between me and the brand there where I know what we're doing and what we would say and what we stand for and I can be that I just don't have to think about it as if it's work at all it just feels very much like a feels like something really authentic which is a brilliant thing to be able to do at work and I, I feel so lucky that I get to do that and then the team that we've built are really similar too so they just get it and they know what the answer is and we chat about it together but there's really none of that kind of wrangling over the brand would we say this would we stand for that it, it feels very natural.
1: Is the Callalee voice your voice?
0: Like what's the difference between Jodie and Callalee? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It isn't my voice. There are some things I definitely had to dial back. Uh, I I really enjoy humour and writing, I suppose, with quite a sarcastic humour, which I think would not be appropriate. Uh, We need to be a bit more inclusive, but we do have a nod and a wink kind of side to us as well, which is definitely there. I think the down-to-earthness and the just wanting... I'm not saying it's me being really down-to-earth, but I mean... (laughs) I mean, the fact that I really didn't want to create something that felt constructed or like a brand, sort of branding by numbers, I really didn't want that. It needed to feel authentic. You know, that probably does come from me and some some side of the tone of voice in that regard definitely comes from me. But it it's a collaborative effort. And particularly when it comes to other channels, I think I quite like really sometimes quite surreal angle on something and find the least said thing to say about something which is what I find interesting and that's not always the right thing to do when it comes to brand comms and I think other team members are way better at kind of understanding what's out there what are people really interested in what do they want to hear and they'll be like Jodie you know we don't need to do a whole post about this like New genre, of something, something. Trying to tie it in with tampons, like nobody knows what that's about. And it'll be like, okay, just because you've got excited about a niche, exactly. Yeah. Getting excited about niche, and actually, our content meetings are very much like that. It's like we all bring in our most random niches. Like I saw this, I love this, I'm interested in that, and then we kind of filter each other's inputs. Like Jayla, and our head of socials, really into country music and I'll kind of ration her country music references per quarter
1: <laughs> on her Instagram. Okay. Week. So we can all watch out for that and keep you all yeah. in check. That's hilarious. Okay.
0: What does hustle mean to you? I think as an approach to a career, I'm actually quite, I don't really relate to the word hustle because I have tend to take a more intuitive approach to what the right step is It it tends to occur to me that it should feel somewhat easy or clear. And there's something about the word hustle that makes me think that things are kind of difficult or they don't fit and you have to kind of try and squash them. And I really don't like that approach, but I appreciate entirely that a brand perspective is a very different thing thing from other sides of the business in that regard you do have to fight to make things happen in other parts of the business and I'm lucky to be able to be a bit more intuitive about my role but then when it comes to the day-to-day hustle it's pulling things out of nowhere finding an interesting spark and turning it into something bigger that feels like a kind of hustle that I can really relate to so for example I'd written an Instagram post quite a while back now about the Bartholin's glands, which are these two pea-sized lumps that are either side of your vulva that I'd discovered on myself and not really known what they were. So Googled them, found out about them, and then slightly nervously brought them to a team meeting because it still feels weird sometimes to kind of talk about your own vulva at work. It's quite an unusual situation to be in. And then found out that two of our team members had been to the doctor about their Bartholin's glands before, one because of a complication, one not knowing what they were. And the doctor did not know what they were either and said they're normal, but didn't know the name for them. So we knew that Bartholin's glands were quite important because we can all feel them. We know we've got them, yet none of us know what the hell they are. So we turned that into an Instagram post, which did well. We then have turned that into a collaboration with the Vagina Museum and they've posted about it. Uh, They've done a post that we wrote as part of a kind of sponsored collaboration. And we kind of turned that into um, a content piece and... And I think that's ended up summing up really what we're trying to do, which is teach people more about themselves and to discover more about themselves and their bodies. So, and, and you know, that of course, the rest of the team bring those kind of little insights all the time as well. So I think hustle for me is finding something that seems small and then seeing how big you can make it and what you can turn it into.
1: I think you've said some incredibly powerful things there in a really you have this very understated approach and in in that you just in a very understated way just delivered some incredibly important stuff so i completely agree with you that is the act of it but you're also right to say that the word hustle does imply that things are difficult and it implies that it should be uphill and it's actually a really helpful reframe because i think hearing you say that's made me think that in reality you hustle until the point where it doesn't feel like hustle anymore. And at that moment, you're onto something.
0: Mm.
1: So mm. the hustle is the like, I guess, in your case, would have been the trying out five different voices until you found the one that felt authentic. Mm. It just feels like you jumped into the authentic one first, as a, as a I guess, tribute to your understanding of the category and, and vision for the brand. Mm. Because that's when you have product market fit. If you're in a, if you're in a kind of commercial marketing role or you have a flywheel, if you're in a, a different marketing role where your objective is to create momentum mm. or you have this feeling of authenticity, which is what you've kind of from a brand perspective have really honed in on. And I think for, for lots of the copy club, they they really are hustling. But yes, let's celebrate it as something that's kind of part of the job and as a necessary a necessary thing to do but it's also recognize that it's really hard Mm. and maybe not glorify it maybe glorify the bit where you're onto it and you can run with something that's really working
0: yeah and you know I do think it feels less like hustle when you bring something true from yourself to it as well which which can at times be a little bit I suppose, questioned in the the marketing industry because you shouldn't make things about yourself all the time. You have to look at the data and you have to look at the customers, but you do have to bring a spark of something that you can relate to, I think, to make it feel worth doing and to make sure that you're connected back to the real world and you're not just going out and making some kind of amazing brand that actually doesn't relate to anything or that nobody really gets it so and the, I think those moments of bringing something of yourself whether it's like a tone of voice that you like or something that you're interested in or whether it's just a relationship with somebody when hey, agencies are pitching to you and there's one particular agency where you just think yeah I like the cut of their jib I want to work with them those moments the moments where it stops feeling like this kind of like Ooh, work thing and feels yeah. exciting and then and those do, it sounds a bit woo, but those do tend to be the bits where you suddenly accelerate really quickly or you just get that really nice, light feeling about work and think, yeah, I get this. This is happening. Whereas the the bits that I think of the word hustle sometimes are the bits where you're sort of sitting there in the meeting and you're a bit worried what to say. And you're trying to look at your cheat sheet to see what your stats should be. It's kind of like it's it's an uncomfortable place to be.
1: that's honestly game changing for me. I feel like like the search for lightness as opposed to the search for graft mm. is just such a lovely reframe of like what we're all trying to achieve in the in the feeling we want to have about going to work. Yeah. And we all have those we can all remember those moments where you felt that lightness and you felt a, a positivity and a forward movement that's kind of almost out of your control. And that's because you know you're onto a really good thing. Mm. And that's the place to be in, not the place where you're like treading water under the desk, you know, that like duck, duck above water. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah absolutely. Okay. You do have to do a bit of both, but it's lovely when you hit the right, you hit the winner.
1: Yeah, for sure. You have to do a bit of both, but but focus on doing less of it. Surely, <laughs> yeah. surely move away. <laughs> like, let's do the stuff that feels good. Um. So where do you get inspiration from? I'm excited for your answer to this. I think you might have some unusual ones.
0: Oh, I I hope I'm not going to disappoint you then. I think (laughs) we, we, we definitely try and look outside of our category. While some parts of the business keep an eye on what's going on in the sector, we definitely don't get our ideas. Otherwise, it's just like recreating stuff that's already been done. So we get our inspiration from as far and wide as we possibly can. We have a set time in our meeting schedule where we all bring the most random inspiration we possibly can from posts we've seen that we like, brands that are nothing to do with period care that we like, to songs or films or food, just anything that makes us all fired up because you never know when something's going to spark another idea. So tell me about how that works. You have
1: a fixed period of time, and you ask everyone to present. That's that is. I want to know exactly what happens. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah, we we have our we can't we have a Slack channel as well, which is called Social Inspo, where you can just put anything that you kind of find inspiring. And then we have they're monthly at the moment. They used to be weekly, and we're just kind of looking at our meeting cadence again at the moment. But we have a kind of set time, and the brief really is just like think of anything that made you feel interested or excited. We used to do it in our weekly meeting. We called it One Good Thing and everybody had to just bring one thing that they thought was cool, which was an idea I got from a podcast. I can't remember which podcast now, but it wasn't about marketing, I don't think. And then we had this other one, which <laughs> I heard this um, this anecdote about the band Aerosmith, that they did this thing called Dare to Suck, where they had to go into the studio and make the worst music and really Dare to Suck. And they end up getting some quite good stuff out of it. I don't know where I heard the anecdote, but just thought that's a great idea just to take all the pressure off anything you're about to say and do and really kind of push the boundaries. So we've had a few dare to suck meetings where we've all just come with the most deliberately stupid or inappropriate ideas. And it is amazing that once you get each other kind of laughing or thinking about it, you can iterate that into a usable idea almost as well as you can iterate quite a sensible idea into some new content. Um, And I was trying to think of some examples of things we've done this way, but definitely we did a little series where we kind of remade popular memes, but we remade them about period products, which came (laughs) from the Dare to Suck meeting where somebody just said some really cheesy meme idea. Plus it's just fun to do as a team and it stops you from being too precious about your work. So I think it has a pretty positive effect anyway. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's a huge creative hotbird, even if it just shakes things up and asks you to look at the world in a different way.
0: Yeah, yeah, it works.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to do one good thing and then I'll see how that goes. The Poppy <laughs> Club team might be like, I don't, know, I don't know how they'll get their head around the best reference, but I'll, I'll also <laughs> test that and report back. <laughs> and finally, what is one thing you need help with
0: that listeners of this podcast might be able to support on? I think like probably everybody working at a startup, we've got a very strong mission and a real passion to remove shame from periods, to remove shame from talking about bodies. There's so much more to do, but we're quite a small team. Our budgets can be limited. So we just really, we just kind of want to make those connections, hear from other people that believe in our mission too. And whether it's working with us or... Swapping some content or whatever it might be, we're very open to just hearing what other people think. Collaborating, I suppose.
1: What a rich proposition to collaborate with!
0: I can think of so
1: many fun brands who would have a rapport with what you're doing. Like trying to be authentic and and have the difficult conversations feels like a really and um, fertile ground for some fun ideas. Yes,
0: yes. amen to that.
1: Awesome well you've literally just changed my view of work so that's <laughs> like like so I just just sit in the sun loads and that's now really good for business yep tick <laughs> tick just focus on the stuff that feels like but it's such a good point how can you rinse your to-do list and think these are all things that felt unconstructed you know felt like hard work am i doing them right what would have to change for me to do them in a way that felt lighter and authentic more authentic and yeah yeah does that make things feel easier okay well i might pick your brains on that further because it's really got my brain wearing cool well have a lovely rest of the day go get some sunshine take care thanks again for your time Bye. bye Thank you so much for joining this chat with Jodie. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Join us next week for a chat with Sarah Welsh, co-founder of Hanks, who create gyna-friendly, good-looking, sustainable sexual health products. We would love any feedback you have or your thoughts on the topics we discussed. Taking the time to give someone your opinion is such a kind act, and we really want to make this as useful for you as possible. If you're ever in need of marketing support, please do send us a message or find us at thecopyclub.co.uk. See you next week.